This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash podcast for your free trial. monarchmoney.com slash podcast. Today on Something You Should Know, simple ways that will make your smartphone battery charge better and last longer. Then a very effective way to solve problems and create new ideas. It's called lateral thinking. I would say that Uber and Airbnb are fantastic examples of lateral thinking. You can't develop a taxi company into Uber. It requires a completely different approach. Or Airbnb, a hotel company that doesn't own a single hotel room. How lateral is that? Also, does it matter what time of day you fill up your gas tank? And some great advice for having those difficult conversations. For instance, When people complain, don't explain. Because we think if something goes wrong and we explain to the person why we didn't return their call or why they didn't get their package or why their table isn't ready yet, people will forgive us. Actually, they get angrier. All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you doesn't necessarily mean they're qualified. Or you could pull out that file of random resumes that came in during the last six months. Maybe there's somebody in there. Maybe. Now, if you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. As a business owner, I've found that hiring the right people, there's just nothing more important. Don't leave it to chance or a referral or a random resume. Use Indeed. In the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed, according to Indeed data worldwide. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com something. Just go to Indeed.com slash something right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com slash something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? Oh, you need Indeed. Something You Should Know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. You know, I'll bet your smartphone that you carry around all day costs a lot of money. It costs a lot of money to buy it, and then you have to pay every month to maintain it and keep it connected. 
And one way to make sure your smartphone lasts a long time so you don't have to get a new one is to take good care of the battery. One way is to reduce strain on the battery by charging it slower when you can. Both Android and Apple phones allow you to charge the battery slower over longer periods of time, like when you charge it overnight. On an Apple phone, you open the settings and choose Battery, and then choose Battery Health and Charging, and then choose Optimized Battery Charging. That turns the feature on. On an Android phone, you go from Settings to Battery, Adaptive Preferences, and then Adaptive Charging. If your phone knows that it can take a long time to charge, like when you charge it overnight, then it will take a long time, and that puts less strain on the battery. Other ways to improve your phone battery's life, keep it away from extreme temperatures, like in a hot car. Take it out of the case when you're charging it. And if you have to store your phone for a long period of time, store it so the battery is half-charged. In other words, it's not almost dead, and it's not fully charged, because both of those extremes will shorten the battery's life. And that is something you should know. Sometimes I find myself getting stuck in my thinking. Like when I go to solve a problem, often I'll try to solve it the way I've solved other problems. I think we all get a little set in our ways. Still, we hear about new ways to think, of coming up with ideas, new ways to solve problems and create new things. And what you have to do is just change the way you think, change the way you see the problem. And one way you may have heard of is something called lateral thinking. And it's kind of cool and worth exploring. And I have just the person to help us do that. Paul Sloan is a recognized authority on innovation and creativity. He has written several books on the topic, and his latest is called Lateral Thinking for Every Day, Extraordinary Solutions to Ordinary Problems. Hi, Paul. Hey, thanks for coming on Something You Should Know. Great to be with you, Mike. So I know I've heard the phrase lateral thinking before, and when I think about it, it sort of sounds like it's related to think outside the box, but what is it exactly? What is lateral thinking? In contrast to vertical thinking, where we build block on block, we we do things the conventional way, we proceed in a straightforward manner. Lateral means coming at the problem from the side. And uh, thinking outside the box is another term for it, I guess. Um, It's a form of creative thinking. It's just a way of approaching issues and problems in particular where you're looking for offbeat, weird, sideways-type solutions. Can you give me like a very brief, simple example that maybe we would know of lateral thinking in action? There was a little old woman... And uh, when she was sitting at home, if if she heard a ring at the doorbell at the front door, she would put her hat and coat on and then she would go and answer the door. And if it was somebody who um, she wanted to meet, she'd say, oh, I've just arrived home. Come in. Uh, We can have a cup of tea. If it was someone she didn't want to chat to, she'd say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm just on my way out. We must meet some other time. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that's an example of lateral thinking in action. Um, Maybe a a little facile one. But there are lots of serious ones, too. I would say that Uber and Airbnb are fantastic examples of lateral thinking. You can't develop a taxi company into Uber. It requires a completely different approach um, to to harness all the people who drive for a small fee. Or Airbnb, a hotel company that doesn't own a single hotel room. How lateral is that? 
Well, when I hear those examples like Airbnb or Uber or Lyft, I wonder if what they did was, let's do some lateral thinking here and come up with a new idea, or is this just a way to retrospectively categorize what they did? That it wasn't intentionally lateral thinking, it's just, well, you know, as we look back on this, that was lateral thinking. Well, all I'm saying is they didn't approach it from the point of view of of Marriott Hotels or the Pasadena taxi company that's saying, how can we develop? How can we do something new? And they think straightforward from where they are. They started in an entirely different place and came at the problem saying, is there an entirely different way to solve the customer's needs? And that's what lateral thinking is all about. And that's why lateral thinking, I think, is the key to innovation. Okay. But saying, is there another way, isn't a way. It's saying, is there another way? So what's the, <laughs> what's the way? What, how do you do that? lateral thinking because it it sounds very accidental and very lucky and there's probably a lot of examples where it doesn't work and so make it real for me well exactly right it there are many things that you'll think of that don't work but there are techniques you can use to displace yourself out of your normal thinking zone so we all operate in our thinking in a comfort zone and we tend to think similar things do similar things approach problems in similar ways especially at work and in our social lives we we, we are creatures of habit and um we we do this pretty much the same things most days. But there are ways and techniques that you can use, uh, which I describe in my workshops and in my books, uh, which displace you. For example, the random word technique, where you've got a problem and you define the problem, and then you take a dictionary and you open the dictionary anywhere, and the, the first noun that you come to, you list some associates, uh, associations of that noun, and then you try and force an asso- a solution, an idea, from between that word or any of its associations and the problem. And people don't believe this works until I do it with them. And when I do it with a group, uh, the first word might not work very well, the second word might not, but sooner or later you'll get a word which gives some incredibly brilliant and different and radical idea for solving the problem because the whole group is starting from an entirely different uh, point of view. And you, when you just said people think it doesn't work, it doesn't sound like it would work. It seems... <laughs> no, but and, I know. That's why you've got to try it. Um, I, I gave a TEDx talk and, and I, I, I showed it live in the TEDx talk where the, where the problem was how to get more visitors to Brighton. And, and I think the word we got was peel. And then we came up with a whole bunch of ideas based on orange peel and peel of bells and uh, peel of laughter and all sorts of different peels and, and naked people peeling off their clothes. Also, and, and each of these gave us a different rich source of ideas for how to bring more visitors to the town. So th- that's the way it works. Rich ideas or good ideas? Well, uh, well, radical ideas, many of which were silly, many of which are worthless, some of which are, 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 are uh, you know, impossible. But occasionally out in there, you find a nugget. And so the process is you generate a lot of ideas and then you go through them and you, you sift them into a, um, a, a short list of uh, potential ones. Then you discuss them uh, in some depth and some critically uh, critical way using some agreed criteria. And eventually you might refine one or two real nuggets that are, are really valuable. Sounds very time consuming. Oh, it's time-consuming, but it's fun, and and you'll get a, a, an idea which may pay back, you know, a hundred times. In conversations like this, I think examples always help bring it to life, put a face on it. So, what are some examples of of people doing what you just described? Uh, an American 
group called Wolfpack. They're a funk band based in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, they had a small number of loyal followers. They wanted to do a tour for their followers across the USA, but they didn't have the funds to do that. Um, and they didn't have the resources to release an album uh, and, and promote it widely. But they did notice um, something in the terms and conditions of Spotify, which is very interesting. Spotify, as you know, you can play anything you want on there. And um, any track which is played for more than 30 seconds registers a tiny, absolutely tiny royalty to the originator. Uh, and Spotify gets its revenue from advertising and subscriptions. Uh, Wolfpack created an album called Sleepify, and on there there are 10 or 12 tracks, each of them about 32 seconds long, containing no music. And they said to their fans, just leave this playing on a loop on Spotify overnight when you put it on your computer, and it will just circulate, and it will play these tracks over and over again. And it generated, in the end, nearly $20,000 worth of revenue for them, which um, Spotify identified the problem, but they, they were as good as they were, they paid up. They then changed, changed their terms of, of reference. That couldn't happen again. But it got them the money they wanted, and it gave them tremendous publicity all around the world because it was a clever way of raising money. Um, and it's just, it's, there's always a different way. There's always a lateral approach. There's always a different way of doing things. And they found it. You know, one of the most common examples I give is shopping. If you went to a shop in 1920, it would have been like a Victorian shop. The assistant would serve you. You'd go in, you'd ask for some lard or some butter or some bacon. Or, and they'd go to the back of the store and they'd get what you want and bring it to you. And the serve you would bring one piece at a time then run up the total or charge you. And meanwhile, there's a big queue of people behind you, a line of people waiting to be served. And the man called Michael Cullen said, what would happen if we turned the shop around and instead of the assistant serving the customer, the customer served themselves. They just went around and collected goods in a basket and then they, they paid at the end. And I'll bet people said that's a really stupid idea. They'll get confused. They're wandering around the back of the store. You have to put prices on everything. Um, he said, I'm going to try it. He created the world's first supermarket, the King Cullen store in New Jersey. And, you know, it's a tiny idea. Turn the shop around and let the customer serve themselves rather than the assistant serve the customer. Its impact has been enormous. And it's just, instead of developing the normal way, you do something in an entirely different way. Come at it problem from a different direction. It almost seems like lateral thinking is more fun when you look at, at successful examples <laughs> than it is to actually do it because it's kind of hard to do it. It's hard to, to think in a different way, isn't it? It is, but children do it every day. Children think laterally every day. They come up with crazy things. You give them a box to play in and suddenly it's a castle and a ship and other things and they ask really weird questions really weird questions um, and, and the, the, their view of the world is constantly changing and they're trying to put things together in different ways in the same way that Picasso put the world together in a different way or Miles Davis or Salvador Dali they, they put the world together in a different children put the world together in different ways but we gradually grind that out of them at school and, and we tell them there's a right answer to most questions you've got to learn the right answer well there are multiple answers to most questions in life uh, and there isn't just one right answer there isn't just one way to run a taxi company, as, as Travis Kalanick showed with Uber. Lateral thinking is the topic today. We're talking with Paul Sloan, who is an expert in innovation and creativity, and his book is Lateral Thinking for Every Day. 
As a listener to Something You Should Know, I can only assume that you are someone who likes to learn about new and interesting things and bring more knowledge to work for you in your everyday life. I mean, that's kind of what Something You Should Know was all about. And so I want to invite you to listen to another podcast called TED Talks Daily. Now, you know about TED Talks, right? Many of the guests on Something You Should Know have done TED Talks. Well, you see, TED Talks Daily is a podcast that brings you a new TED Talk every weekday in less than 15 minutes. Join host Elise Hugh. She goes beyond the headlines so you can hear about the big ideas shaping our future. Learn about things like sustainable fashion, embracing your entrepreneurial spirit, the future of robotics, and so much more. Like I said, if you like this podcast, something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So, Paul, when I hear people talking about coming up with ideas and new ways to come up with new ideas, new ideas are great, but new ideas aren't necessarily better ideas. They're just different. They're new. Well, different is better, I would argue. Um, If you read a book like Purple Cow by Seth Godin, very famous in its day, what he said was, it's not sufficient to be better. It's more important to be different and because there are so many um, similar things around today that just being another restaurant just being another hotel just being another bookstore ain't gonna cut it you to 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 cut through the noise and to get people to recognize you you have to do something different and lateral thinking is the key to different I'm not saying you should be wildly inefficient and 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 stupid but um, being different is a very, very powerful thing in marketing and in business and in and your social life too. If you're the same as everyone else, I think you're a pretty dull person. If you're different, you're going to be more interesting. So what other ways are there to stimulate this kind of thinking? To be, because if, if you say to me, Mike, I want you to think differently, well, geez, I, okay, I, well, I don't know, maybe, oh, how? My advice uh, would be to, Deliberately do something different every day. Break your routine. So if you normally go to the bridge club, go to the jazz club. If you normally uh, watch uh, Fox News, watch CNN. You know, if, if you normally do something, do something completely different. Take a different route to work. Uh, read a book. Go to the library and take out some random books. <laughs> things like, go to a museum or an art gallery you've never been to. Get some stimulation. Deliberately introduce the random and the different into your world. There was uh, a visitor to the USA, uh, I forget where he was from, and he wanted to see the real USA. He didn't want to just see the tourist sites. And what he did was he'd uh, go to a town and then he'd queue up at the either the Greyhound bus station or the railway station. And the person in front of him, wherever they said they were going, he'd ask for a ticket to that place. Then he'd go there and spend a couple of days looking around that place, and then he'd go to the Greyhound bus station or the, the train station, stand behind someone, and whatever the person in front of him in the line said, if they said, I want to go to uh, Milwaukee, he'd go to Milwaukee. If they said, I want to go to Pasadena, he'd go to Pasadena. And he took a random route around the USA, and I'll bet he saw more of the real USA than 99% of tourists who just go and see the Statue of Liberty and the Grand Canyon and the, the Golden Gate Bridge. As wonderful as lateral thinking is, or or any method of problem solving or creating new ideas, many times things fail. They don't work out. So do we know, is, is there a pattern of when ideas or solutions fail, why they fail? 
Yeah, there's been a lot of research on this, and, and, and they reckon that one of the main reasons why some startups succeed and other startups fail is timing, it's luck, it's happenstance. If you happen to be in the right place in the right market at the right time, you can succeed. And if your invention and the market isn't ready for it, the technology doesn't quite work, uh, the support infrastructure isn't there, then it fails. Uh, and and to some extent, you've got to try these things and see what happens. And um, Eric Ries wrote a very good book called The Lean Startup. And what he says in there is, the key to a successful startup is a minimum viable product. You start with the smallest, crappiest uh, version that you can make, a, a mock-up, a wireframe, a model, a series of, of, of uh, screen mock-ups. And you show it to the customers and you say, is this what you want? And they'll say, well, we like this, but we don't like this. And instead of spending a lot of time building a prototype, which is, is complete, you build uh, uh, the minimum viable version you can get for a few thousand dollars if you can. And, and off you go and you test it. And, and the purpose of that prototype is not payback, it's feedback. Is there an example that comes to mind of, of who did that and did it well? Well, I'll tell you someone who didn't do it well was Segway. Um, so the Segway, you remember that uh, machine? It was going to revolutionize m um, movement, uh, and it was kept under tight wraps. It was it was a state secret. Only a handful of people knew what it was like, and then they announced it uh, and to great fanfare, and they thought it was going to change the world, and it, it didn't go down well. People thought it looked a bit silly because they hadn't tested it with customers. They hadn't been out there. They hadn't got that feedback. And most really successful startup uh, companies uh, nowadays do try this uh, fast uh, feedback and FMCG companies, Procter & Gamble, Johnson & Johnson, Unilever, they'll often produce uh, a, a, a number of a potential product and they put, you know, a hundred of them on the shelves and they just watch and see if customers go for them. And if the customers don't like them, they withdraw the product, uh, the, 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 the mock-ups. Uh, and if it works, then they'll roll it out. So they've learned that the best way to test a product is to test the product, not to, tr to do it with a focus group, not to do it with... Um, uh, analysis and spreadsheets, but actually put it in the marketplace in real world situation and see what the customers like and what they don't like. I want to go back to, you had said, and I've heard this advice before, you know, take a different route to work, do, do, do things differently. And, and I've done that. And, but, but do you know, is there any evidence as to what that's supposed to do? Or it just sounds like that's a good thing to do because it gets you out of your routine, but nobody really knows what it does. Well, there was, um, you know, there was a, a tube strike in England a few years ago, and uh, everyone who commutes to work into London took the tube, the underground, and there was a strike. Uh, and uh, because they, they use this thing called the Oyster Card, you can track the, the, the motion, movements of all these people, um, and they had to find new ways to get to work. And when the tube strike was over, about 87% went back to the way they did it before, but about 13% didn't. They'd found, by trying something new, they'd found a route that they preferred. Maybe it involved taking the bus or the water taxi or walking or cycling. But they, they, they found a different and presumably better because they stuck to it thing. So when you try new things, uh, you, occasionally you'll find, so, hey, this is, this is better. And it's only by trying them that you find that. But also, if you meet more people, if you, you, you have a more interesting life, you get more input, you get more diverse. If you meet the same people every day, talk about the same things, you're not learning, you're not growing. Um, and creativity is all about new stimuli. It's about putting 
familiar things together in different ways. And you do that by, by mixing with different groups, by going to countries you've never been to before, by mixing with cultures you've never met before. You learn things all the time. Yeah. Well, I, I get that. And, and I've, you know, I've come up with a couple of good ideas in my life, but I, I don't know how I did it. And it seems like when you try, it's harder than when you just let it happen. Like if something just hits you, but it all seems so magical and mystical and happenstance. And, 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 but it's like every time you sit down to try to come up with an idea, that's like the worst way to do it. <laughs> well, there are people who sit down and come up with ideas, you know. Um, there's a, one of my favorite books on creativity is called by Jack Foster. It's called How to Get Ideas. And he worked as an, in an advertising agency for most of his um, career. And sometimes they just sit down in the morning and they'd come up with ideas. And they said, we're not going to lunch until we've come up with another five great ideas. And because there was a big incentive to go to lunch, they'd come up with those ideas. So it can be done. And um, I run a lot of brainstorm sessions for people where, you know, we start off and I say, we're looking to generate over 100 ideas. People, 100 ideas, that's a lot. But we generate well over 100 ideas, and then you sift them down. So, uh, And many of those ideas are, are, are terrible. They're stupid. They're silly. But silly ideas prompt fresh ideas, uh, and, and that's how you get there. It's, it's, it's by going outside the bounds of the conventional that you stimulate the imagination to come up with something creative, and some, occasionally that's workable and, and practical and brilliant. Well, because I love the stories, tell me one more really good lateral thinking success story. There's one famous story about a company that um, packed um, crockery and glassware and sent it all over the USA. And uh, what they used to do was they, they would wrap the uh, crockery in um, newspapers, old newspaper, wrap it around the glassware, put it in the box, and then send it off. And what they found was that people kept stopping to read the newspapers. I don't know if you ever look through old newspapers, there's always something fascinating in an old newspaper. And the productivity was low because of this. They had a brainstorm about how to solve this problem and they discussed various ways. And the the um, chief sales officer, who was a bit of a you know a tiger, he said, well, why don't we poke people's eyes out? And that way they couldn't uh, read the newspapers and they just um, fold things up. And that's an outrageous idea, poke people's eyes out. And somebody else said, why don't we employ blind people? And they went to the local uh, blind school. And they said, have you got people who would be happy to do wrapping up packaging all day? And they said, yeah, we've got lots of people. And they did that. And that's where the crazy idea, the outlandish idea, the idea which nobody in a normal meeting would utter, poke people's eyes out, generated and led to a very good workable idea. Well, I always think it's fun to look at how people come up with ideas and, and this idea of lateral thinking really gets you thinking. I mean, it's, it's fun to play with it, and, and who knows what you'll come up with. I've been talking with Paul Sloan. He is a recognized authority on innovation and creativity, and his latest book is called Lateral Thinking for Every Day, Extraordinary Solutions to Ordinary Problems. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you for coming on and talking about this, Paul. I appreciate it. Really enjoyed it, Mike. We all find ourselves in conversations from time to time that are, shall we say, tricky, challenging, sensitive. Conversations today can seem more difficult. People are easily offended. Maybe you have people in your life that you avoid having conversations with, but 
but you'd really like to talk to them. It's just too risky. And then there are those conversations where it's not the person that's the problem, it's the topic. Maybe there's a lot at stake, or it's a topic that's hard to bring up, or you just want to make a really good impression. Well, here to help with all of this is Sam Horn. She is founder of Tung Fu, a training institute that promotes communication in corporations, schools, government agencies, and nonprofits. She's the author of a book called Talking on Eggshells, Soft Skills for Hard Conversations. Hey, Sam, so explain what you mean talking on eggshells. What, what's the problem you're addressing here? Well, you know, McKinsey just came out with a report that said that rudeness is getting worse and incivility is on the rise. And uh, I bet we all have someone in our life and we tiptoe around this person. We feel like we can't say anything right. We're constantly worried about saying something wrong. And that is what it means to talk on eggshells. And so this is what to say when you don't know what to say in character building situations we face every day. When we're with those people that we're very cautious about talking to and what we say, what's going on there? What's the dynamic? What's the unspoken truth that's happening that causes that feeling? I'm so glad you asked that because the anxiety can be defined in two words, not knowing. And part of our anxiety around these kind of people is we don't know when they're going to blow up. We don't know when they're going to take their frustration out on us. We don't know if we're going to jeopardize a job. We don't know if we're going to lose a customer or ruin a relationship. And that anxiety actually makes things worse because it makes us hesitant and tentative. So one of the whole goals of talking on eggshells is to know what to say in those sensitive situations so we can think on our feet and respond in a way that helps instead of hurts. And so what's the general mindset here? What's the best way to approach these situations, given that, you know, people are different and all, but, but how do you get your head in the right place? You know, I, I love stories and examples because I think they actually show how this shows up in the real world. So a quick example that answers your question. And if we keep this in mind, it really can help us be mindful so we respond and react. So here's 60 second story. I was visiting my son in New York a while back and his one-year-old son, Hero, was crawling across the floor and, and he climbed up this guitar stand and he started banging on the strings. Now see, in that moment, Andrew could have yanked the car, uh, guitar away. He could have said no. He could have said, leave the guitar alone. All of that would have made it worse because it would have reinforced the dreaded behavior and it would have made Hero feel bad or guilty or wrong. Instead, Andrew said one word. You know what it was? Gentle. And I saw Hero's face transform. And he reached back to the guitar, strum, strum, strum. And he reached up to some bells that were on the window, ring, ring, ring. And in that moment, Hero made music because Andrew used a word that shaped his behavior instead of shamed it. And that's one of the goals of talking on eggshells. Yeah, because when you talk to somebody who you have that anxiety about, sometimes you say, because of that anxiety, you say everything wrong, that you're, you're, you're tripping over your own tongue trying to get it right. And in the process, it seems like it, it never goes right. 
You and you are right. In fact, unless people are driving, I hope they get out paper and they put a vertical line down the center because the way that this is easy to remember and apply is over on the left are words to lose, over on the right are words to use. So over on the left, put the words stop and don't because you're so right in the moment we often say you know stop yelling at me or don't interrupt me or you know uh, leave the guitar alone we actually once again use words that reinforce the dreaded behavior over on the right put start and do know what do we want them to do how do we want them to treat us it's please speak to me with respect or please let me finish, or please be on time early tomorrow, because now what we're doing is we're directing the attention to desired behavior instead of dreaded, and that way we really do shape what happens instead of shame it. So let's talk about some of those people who, or or at least the situations where people are acting in a way and how you suggest we respond. For example, if people are just being argumentative and just disruptive and how, how do you deal with that person? We, we do a pattern interrupt. If people are arguing or um, are blaming or shaming or something like that, often over on the left is that we try and talk over them which actually makes them talk louder and, and our voice of reason gets drowned out in the commotion. So over on the, well, over on the left is find fault. It's like, hey, you were the one who dropped the ball on this. Hey, don't blame me, it's not my fault. All of those defensive things or accusations do make it worse. So over on the right, what, we, what do we do? The pattern interrupt is a physical sign. Like if you played sports, you know the T. We say, hey, time out or we hold our hand up like a policeman would and say, wait a minute, or stop. And then we say these words, let's not do this. Or we say, this won't help. We could argue for the rest of the afternoon about who dropped the ball on this and it won't get this client back. Then we use the words instead. So let's not do this, this won't help. Then instead bridges, uh, let's focus on finding solutions rather than fault. Instead, let's talk about how we can keep this from happening again. Instead, let's talk about how we can work together to uh, make this more efficient in the future. And by doing that, we have a pattern interrupt and we shift people to finding solutions rather than fault. Let's talk about complainers, because I think we all come up against those people all the time who always find something to complain about, and it's always in the way of whatever it is you're trying to do. And it, it gets tiring, it's wearisome, and they're difficult to deal with. So what do you, what do you recommend? When people complain, don't explain. Because we think if something goes wrong and we explain to the person why we didn't return their call or why they didn't get their package or why their table isn't ready yet, people will forgive us. Actually, they get angrier because excuses are explanations. People feel we're not being accountable. Over on the right, put the A train, A, 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 A for agree. Two of the most powerful words in any disagreement are you're right. 
You're right. Your table was supposed to be ready at seven o'clock. You're right. I was supposed to call you yesterday. You're right. Your package was supposed to arrive today. Then take the second A, A for apologize. And I'm sorry your table isn't ready yet. And I'm sorry that your package didn't arrive. Now the third A, A is for act. And let I see that this table, the, they're paying their bill. Let's get it cleaned up so it's ready for you in the next five minutes. Thank you for your patience. And let me check the tracking on that package, see what it's going to arrive. Do you see how when people complain, don't explain, take the A train, and we actually advance the complaint into a solution instead of anchoring it in that argument. One type of person I find difficult to deal with is when people are sad or depressed and, and you, you know, that kind of clouds the whole conversation. It's hard to get past that. How, how do you get past that? Once again, you're, you're bringing up situations that all of us face almost on a, on a daily basis. Someone is angry. Someone is accusing us of something that's not our fault. Someone is unhappy. Someone's taking our frustration out on us. So this is the situation where someone is sad or unhappy. And guess what we do? Over on the left, we try and comfort and console them. Well, you know, we've all had this happen to us. Oh, things will be better tomorrow. Well, you've got to look on the bright side. Oh, that happened to me. And we're trying to make them feel better. And we actually make them feel worse when we try and comfort and console them. A quick example, and then we'll talk about what to put on the right, is that in one of my Talking on Eggshells workshops, we were talking about this very idea. And the gentleman, uh, he slapped his hand to his forehead and he said, oh, I've got to talk to my brother. I said, why? He said, my brother and his wife have a new baby and the baby never sleeps. And the baby like wakes up every hour on the hour. They're exhausted. And he called me last night and he was talking about it. Guess what I said? Welcome to the next 18 years. <laughs> you know, my brother hung up on me. And in the, in the moment, I thought, it, you know, it might help him feel like, well, he's not alone. This happens, etc. No, I made him feel worse. He resented me. So what do we do over on the right? We paraphrase what it is they're saying with the question. So your daughter, um, you know, d d never sleeps for more than an hour at a time. Yeah. So you and your wife are exhausted. Yeah. Now you may feel, but Sam, that doesn't help. Yes, it does. Because when people are sad and unhappy, they don't want advice. They want our ears. They want to get it off their chest. And this magical thing happens when we paraphrase back what someone says, they say, yeah, you know, so it's like really, you know, this isn't the, the golden time you thought it would be. Yeah. You know, so you and your wife are one. Yeah. And you know what that means? That means they feel heard. We didn't give them advice. We didn't try and make them feel better. All we did was feed back what they said in a way that they knew someone cared enough to listen without giving them advice. Do you have some advice for, it's not the type of person or what they say that's so much trouble, it's the situation. And what I mean by that is, if it's a really important conversation, sometimes people in their own head get anxious or, or you know, because there's so much riding on it and they get tongue-tied and they act very sheepish and... Is there, is there some sort of framework you can put around that that will help you not fall into that sheepish, anxiety-ridden <laughs> response? 
When, when it's a high stakes conversation, when there's a lot on the line, we often turn to doubts. We turn to worries. Oh, what if my mind goes blank? What if I blow it? What if uh, people, what if I don't get a yes to this, etc.? And those doubts and fears become self-perpetuating and they feed our anxiety and we're not going to get a yes or people uh, will not believe what we're saying because of that unsureness. So let me give you a quick example and then once again, we'll talk about what to do about it. Uh, Candy Leitner, um, you may know, who is the founder of Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And uh, her daughter was killed uh, by a drunk driver on the way to prom. And she spiraled into anxiety and depression. And after several months, she realized this would not bring her daughter back. And she founded MADD. At her very first speaking event, there were a thousand people in the room. She is standing in the wings um, and, and her knees are shaking, you know, her palms are sweating and her friend is with her. And she says to her friend, I didn't sign up for this. She said, I don't think I can do this. And her friend went over to her purse and got out some keys and came back and handed the keys to Candy Leitner and said, Candy, if as a result of speaking, one person out in that audience turns over the keys instead of driving drunk, will it be worth it? And that focused her on what matters, which is on connecting with people, on this opportunity to share a message she believes strongly in, on this opportunity to actually plant a seed of action that people can take in order to be a better parent or a better uh, partner or a better citizen, etc. So the next high stakes situation that we're in, if we our mind is racing with all those doubts, etc., do what Beyonce said. She said, I get nervous if I don't get nervous. She said, I just channel that nervousness into the show and focus on what an opportunity it is to let this person know how we really feel. Channel this into how grateful we are for this opportunity to interview for this job. And if we focus on what a gift and an opportunity is to connect with someone who is in a position to take a desirable action that centers us in our human urge to connect instead of whether or not we get it perfect. What is the, the, the thing people, the situation or the type of person or, or whatever that people seem to have the most trouble with or ask you about the most or, or struggle with the most if we haven't talked about it already? It's when people make accusations. It's like, you don't care about your customers. You women are so emotional. And, and what we often do is we take offense and we go on the defensive and we deny it. And when we deny negative accusations, we actually end up reinforcing them. So once again, an example, and then what to do instead. I was speaking at a women's leadership conference and in the Q and A afterwards, a woman put her hand up and she said, Sam, why are women so catty to each other? Now, I'd heard that question many times before, and I thought it was time to reframe it. So I did what I call a Don Draper, because Don Draper in the TV show Mad Men said, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. So I said, ladies, Let's agree to never ask or answer that question again, because every time we do, we reinforce that negative stereotype. So from now on, if that comes up, 
change the conversation and go on record with what you do believe instead of what you don't. So say, you know what I found? Women are real champions of each other. In fact, I wouldn't have this speaking engagement if Joyce hadn't stepped up for me. So if someone says, you don't care about your customers and you say, we do too care about our customers. Now we're arguing with our customers about whether we care about our customers. Instead, over on the right, write down these four words. What do you mean? Or what makes you think that? Because if instead of uh, reacting and denying, we do too care about our customers, instead say, well, what do you mean? Well, I've called three times and no one's returned my messages. Or, you know, as I've been waiting now for 20 minutes and no one's even looked up from the, ah, the real issue. Now we can address the real issue instead of reacting to their attack. So next time you don't know what to say, next time someone accuses you of something that's not true, now don't get mad, I am not mad. <laughs> say, what makes you think that? And it puts the ball back in their courts and then you can move the conversation once again to what you want to have happen instead of denying and defending something that isn't true, fair, or kind. In any conversation, it always seems to me anyway that... It- the first few seconds of that conversation sets the tone. It identi- you identify who you are and what you're willing to, you know, where your boundaries are. There's something about those first few seconds that really matter as the conversation moves forward. And how do you, how do you recommend people start that conversation or assert themselves in a way that says, this is who I am and, you know, this, this is what I'll tolerate and let's move forward in a great way? So I love this question about what we can say right out of the gate that puts us on the same side instead of side against side, because that's one of the goals of talking on eggshells. In fact, John Mackey, who's the founder of Whole Foods, said that this is the course correct for today's cancel culture. So first, I'm going to say what not to say. And then once again, what to say that makes us more cooperative instead of conflict is that in almost every disagreement, Both people are using this little three-letter word, but. Over on the left, put but. Well, I hear what you're saying, but. Well, I'm sorry that happened, but. Well, you did a good job on that, but. Well, I realize it's important to you, but. And if we are using that word, but, what we are letting that person know is that we are making them wrong, that what they said is not true, that uh, what they say isn't important, that we don't care. That word, but creates more conflicts than any other word in the English language. Over on the right, substitute it with and. I hear what you're saying, and let's talk about how we can handle that more effectively in the future. It's like, I'm sorry that happened, and thank you for bringing it to my attention. You did a good job on that, and could you please add a paragraph? Do you see how the word and does not have to agree with what they said? It just doesn't argue with it or cancel it out. So instead, use the word and, and what you're doing is you're letting that person know that you're hearing what they're saying instead of canceling it out, and you're moving forward to what can be done about it instead of right out of the bat making them wrong. So much of, of your advice, what you're saying is is really counterintuitive until you stop and think about it, and then you go, yeah, 
Yeah, that's exactly right. I appreciate you sharing that advice. Sam Horn has been my guest. The name of her book is Talking on Eggshells, Soft Skills for Hard Conversations. And there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. It's been fun, Sam. Thanks for coming on. Is there a best time to fill up your gas tank? Eh, not really. There's this theory going around that filling up in the morning is best based on the notion that a liquid, a fluid, is denser when it's cold. So you would get more gas for your money in the cool of morning. The problem with that theory is, and it's been tested, that gas is stored in underground tanks, and the temperature in those tanks doesn't vary very much at all, all day long. Certainly not enough to make a difference in the price. The day of the week you fill up might matter. According to a petroleum analyst, Monday and Tuesday is when gas prices are typically cheapest. Then as the week goes on, prices steadily tend to rise, culminating in the highest price on the weekend. But that's according to the national average price of gas. Monday and Tuesday may be the cheapest nationally, but you should check your local gas station to see if other days are in fact cheaper. And that is something you should know. The very best way to support this podcast is, well, a couple of ways, actually, uh, to support our advertisers and also spread the word about the podcast. Let other people know about it, ask them to listen, and help us grow our audience. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.